Welcome to Skim This. We're going to kick things off with the major headlines from the week. From the Supreme Court's new term to a major shakeup for global oil markets. Plus, an update on Hurricane Ian recovery efforts. Also on the show today, the NFL was back in the spotlight again this week, as the league faces scrutiny over its concussion protocols. We're breaking down the NFL's latest fumble. Are we kind of complicit in the NFL industrial entertainment complex and everything that these men put on the line for our nation's entertainment? And finally, if you feel like your friends are spamming you with voice memos, you're not alone. But love them or hate them, you have to know how to send them. So we're asking an etiquette expert to break down the do's and don'ts of sending a voice note. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some of the week's biggest headlines and give you the context on why they matter. First up, just as we were about to hit publish on this show, we got some breaking news. President Biden has pardoned all people convicted of simple marijuana possession under federal law. The pardon also applies to anyone convicted under Washington, D.C. law. This move is seen as a step towards decriminalization, and the White House says these pardons will impact thousands of people. On Twitter, Biden said sending people to jail for possessing marijuana has upended too many lives for conduct that's legal in many states. That's before you address the clear racial disparities around prosecution and conviction. Today, we begin to right those wrongs. Team Biden also wants to reevaluate the way we federally classify marijuana. Because right now, it's classified the same as drugs like heroin and LSD. So while Biden didn't actually decriminalize pot possession, he did fulfill one of his major 2020 campaign promises. All right, next headline. Just like the rest of us, the Supreme Court also had to return to the office after summer break. And with their term already in full swing, we're breaking down three things to know about the court this year. First, there's a new justice in town. Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson is the new kid on the bench. Reminder, she was confirmed after Justice Stephen Breyer retired earlier this year. Her appointment also made history because she's the first Black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. But Justice Jackson won't change the court's ideological balance, aka its conservative supermajority. So experts say we can still expect to see six to three decisions on many cases. So that's the first thing. Second, let's talk about what's on their docket. The Supremes are going to be hearing cases that involve high-stakes issues, from elections to guns and the environment. One high-profile case they're hearing focuses on affirmative action, and it could stop college admissions offices from considering an applicant's race as one factor in accepting a student to a school. This could change the future of affirmative action in higher education and overturn a 40-year-long precedent. The Supremes are also hearing two cases that could seriously impact the 2024 election. One case could limit the role of state courts in elections, giving full, unchecked power to state legislators to run the elections in their states. The other case deals with voting rights, 
and could change how lawmakers in some states draw their congressional district maps, and it could roll back protections for minority voters. So the stakes are high this term. And the third thing to know is that trust in the Supreme Court is at a historic low. Gallup polling shows that less than half of Americans have trust in the Supreme Court. And that's in part because people believe the court has become politicized, even though it's not supposed to be. And considering the court's unprecedented decision to overturn Roe v. Wade earlier this year, some analysts expect other longstanding precedents could be on the chopping block. We should note, the Supremes are just easing back into work now, so we won't hear their final opinions on a lot of cases until next summer. For our next headline, we're checking in on Florida, one week after Hurricane Ian hit. On Wednesday, President Biden visited the state to assess the damage. And there was a lot to take in. So far, we know that more than 100 people died in the storm, and damage estimates are as high as $75 billion. Some reports say Hurricane Ian could be the deadliest storm to hit Florida since 1935. Over the past week, thousands of people have been rescued and over hundreds of thousands still have no power. After taking a helicopter tour of the hardest hit areas around Fort Myers, President Biden said at a press conference that the recovery effort could take years. In particular, some experts are concerned that the lack of flood insurance in the area could delay rebuilding even further. Because spoiler, Regular home insurance doesn't typically cover flood damage. To learn more, we talked to Leslie Sism, who covers the insurance industry for The Wall Street Journal. Inevitably, after a big disaster, especially after these hurricanes with a lot of surge damage, people will get out their policies or they'll call their agents and they'll say, I've got flood damage I need to get taken care of. I want to file my claim. And they then learn that homeowner's policy does not cover flooding and it's pretty clear cut that it does not cover flooding. It's just a terrible situation. According to one analysis, of the 1.8 million households in the declared disaster area, less than a third have federal flood insurance, leaving many homeowners to rely on assistance from the government, specifically FEMA, to try to rebuild. But FEMA likely isn't going to cover all of the damage and it could take years to see the funds in your bank account. You're sort of out in the cold and you're just left alone to work with the government bureaucracy about getting aid and grants and loans and other assistance, as opposed to being part of an insurance company where you have a contract that entitles you to some amount of money. Everybody who has anything to do with hurricane recovery or construction or anything to do with recovery efforts thinks you're at a big head start if you've got money coming in from an insurance company that will at least jumpstart your recovery efforts. Currently, FEMA has set up a disaster recovery center in Fort Myers to help people file claims for federal aid. If you or someone you know is starting the cleanup process in Florida, you can also go to disasterassistance.gov or download the FEMA app to get started. For our next headline, we're talking about why gas prices are about to go up again. Yesterday, OPEC Plus, 
aka the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, announced it's going to cut oil production by 2 million barrels a day. When you crunch the numbers, that comes out to 2% of global energy supply, which will suddenly be taken off the market. The 24 oil-producing countries, led by Saudi Arabia and Russia, made the announcement as many nations are struggling to get affordable energy. So why'd they do this? The group claims to have pumped the brakes because of recession fears. But some experts believe that's not the whole story and think Saudi Arabia, which is OPEC's biggest producer, is trying to bring oil prices back up. While others believe oil cuts could also help Russia fund its war in Ukraine, because low supply and high demand equals higher costs for energy and more money in Putin's pocket. And we should point out these production cuts aren't sitting well with Team Biden. Back in July, President Biden visited Saudi Arabia to urge the country to continue producing oil to keep costs down for consumers. And considering this latest announcement basically does the opposite, it's safe to say U.S. consumers are going to feel pain at the pump again, and inflation could also get worse. In response, the White House plans to release another 10 million barrels from the U.S.'s strategic oil reserves to try to keep prices down. But whether or not that'll make a trip to the gas station less painful is TBD. And for our final headline, we're checking back in on Iran, where outrage over the death of Masa Amini has turned into nationwide anti-regime protests. As a reminder, Amini was a 22-year-old woman who died after she was arrested by Tehran's morality police in September for allegedly not following the country's hijab rules. And her death has sparked protests in more than 80 cities across Iran. Women are leading the protests. There have been videos circulating of women burning hijabs, cutting their hair, and standing up to the Iranian police. So far, more than 1,000 people have been arrested, and at least 76 protesters have been killed. The Iranian government has a violent history of suppressing dissenters, but so far, protesters aren't standing down. Some chant, death to the dictator, and are calling for the end of Islamic clerical rule that's been in charge for the last 40 years. And this week, all eyes were on university campuses in Iran, where protests escalated. At one university, police shot at students with live ammunition and trapped them in a campus parking lot. Some were reportedly taken away with bags over their faces, and hundreds of people allegedly chanting woman, life, liberty were met with tear gas and paintballs. But despite the government showing force, these protests aren't going away. And some analysts even believe this is just the start of a revolution. Elon Musk and Twitter have been in a toxic relationship for months. There was the quick courtship, a super messy attempted breakup, legal drama, and now it seems like the two may be getting back together. If you need a refresher on this whirlwind tech romance, we're skimming it in 60 seconds. It's the toxic love story that keeps on giving. 
Back in April, Elon Musk slid into Twitter's DMs with a $44 billion offer to buy the company. That made some Twitter employees nervous, but the two eventually reached a deal. And Musk was about to be the proud new owner of one of the biggest social media apps in the country. But after those few months of courtship, Musk got cold feet and said Twitter was underreporting fake accounts, which apparently is one of his deal breakers. Twitter said, you can't leave me now, and sued Musk to follow through with the agreed upon sale. Things got so intense that the two were about to head to court to resolve their differences. And the trial was set to start just two weeks from now, with expected testimonies from high-level Twitter execs and Musk himself. But now, it seems like Musk doesn't want all of that mess, and he actually re-proposed to Twitter this week for the original $44 billion. That's one expensive engagement ring. So why did Musk try to rekindle the relationship? This might sound familiar, but some experts believe it's because he didn't give strong enough reasons for the breakup, and a trial could have forced him to buy Twitter or pay a billion-dollar breakup fee. As for what this union means for the future of Twitter, well, so far, Musk has said he's aiming to bring in new developers and managing practices to make the platform more competitive with other social media apps. And he's even hinted that he wants to make Twitter a so-called everything app, so it's not just a place for hot takes. Also, he might expand Twitter's free speech policies and even let President Trump back on the platform. This marriage also means that Twitter shareholders will get more money in their pockets. In fact, Twitter stock prices closed 22% higher at the end of the day on Tuesday after the news broke. But as with all toxic couples, not everyone is thrilled, including Musk's other businesses, Tesla and SpaceX, the banks who loaned him money, and maybe democracy. Still, despite the warnings, Musk and Twitter could potentially take the next step by the end of the week. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. Recently, the NFL has been back in the headlines. And no surprise here, it's not for a good reason. If you are a football fan, well, you may have seen the scary injury in an NFL game last night. Some people might find these images disturbing. The NFL Players Association reacting swiftly to Thursday's incident and promising a full investigation on whether the strict rules on head injuries were violated. Last week, the quarterback of the Miami Dolphins, Tua Tagovailoa, appeared to sustain two on-the-field head injuries in back-to-back -back games. And since then, the NFL and the Dolphins have received a firestorm of criticism and questions about whether the team skirted the rules and put Tagovailoa in danger. To learn more about the NFL's shady history with head injuries and what's next for a league that's constantly under fire, we called up Lindsay Jones, a senior editor at The Ringer who covers the NFL. Lindsay, thank you so, so much for coming back on the show. We've had a lot of stories recently come into the headlines around the NFL, specifically as it relates to their concussion policy. Can you just walk me through what happened and why we're talking about this? 
it was a really high profile, very visible situation involving Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tagovailoa, who I guess we need to go back to week three. It was Sunday afternoon. His team, the Miami Dolphins, was playing a game in Miami against the Buffalo Bills. Tunga Vailoa was roughed at the end of the release. The pass rusher came on top of him there, and Tunga Vailoa suffered some type of an injury on this play. And in the first half of that game, Tua was kind of pushed backwards, and he fell backwards, he hit his head on the turf, and then when he got up, he stumbled. Tunga Vailoa, oh boy, getting up. Oh, thank goodness. That's an awful, awful sight to see. They will take him to the sideline immediately. He was taken straight into the locker room to get an evaluation for a concussion. Ultimately, he was cleared and he was able to return to that game. And there was a lot of discussion that day about why he was allowed to return and what exactly happened in that evaluation. The NFL and the Miami Dolphins said that earlier in the game, Tua had suffered some sort of a back injury, a little tweaked nerve, and that is what led to that staggering that we saw. So he never entered the concussion protocol. The Dolphins then played in week four on Thursday night football. So it was just four days later than what we saw happen last Thursday night in Cincinnati when they were playing a road game against the Bengals was that he took a hit in the first half of that game. Down he goes, slung down in his own 48-yard line, and uh uh-oh. Once again, hit his head on the turf. And what immediately happened after that was we saw what is called the fencing positioning, which is where his kind of hands and his arms like seized up, his fingers in front of his face, lying motionless on the turf. Tungabailoa is still down as they work on him. Ultimately, he was placed on a backboard, taken off of the field in an ambulance, driven straight to a hospital. He was diagnosed with a concussion and some neck injuries, full movement and all of the extre- his extremities, that stuff is positive news. But it's opened up the NFL and the Dolphins to a ton of questions about what happened the first Sunday, why he was allowed to play again on Thursday night, and what this means for the NFL's concussion protocols moving forward. What technically are the rules around players with concussions or head injuries in the NFL? And does it look like that was broken? Yeah, so the NFL's concussion protocols have evolved a lot over the last decade, but there are very clearly still lapses in the way that this is handled. Basically what happens is if a player is suspected of sustaining a concussion during a game, he's taken to the field. If you've watched NFL games recently, you've probably seen they have these things called a blue sideline tent. It's like a pop-up tent that goes up on the sideline. A player is taken in there. It is kind of dark and quiet in there, even though it's inside of a stadium. And in there, a unaffiliated neuro consultant will go through a concussion exam. If the player needs further evaluation, he'll then be taken directly into the locker room for more testing. And it's only once he passes through these multiple levels of testing that he could be cleared to return to the game. In theory, they're supposed to err on the side of caution. And it is not supposed to be strictly the team's doctor who is making the decision on whether or not he's going to be able to come in. Because one of the issues is that if it's up to the teams or the coaches or the players themselves, they're going to want to continue playing. The big question right now is, with Tua's situation, where did those protocols break down? The NFL Players Association, the Players Union, requested an investigation to find out what happened that day in Miami. And they've said that the protocols have been followed. But to most of us, that means that there is a significant gap and an error within those protocols that allowed Tua to play. 
Yeah. I mean, hearing you describe all of this, the NFL now literally has a tent, like a brain tent on the sidelines, which that in and of itself probably says a lot. I watched both games. I was pretty like shocked and disturbed by seeing someone get injured severely in the span of four days. And I'm kind of curious how the NFL has reacted since. You mentioned that they've launched an investigation, but are they going to be redoing these protocols? Or is this all just kind of like a PR, let's cover it up, let's make people happy? Because I'm sure I wasn't the only person who felt disturbed by watching that. Yeah, I mean, I think there were a lot of people that were really disturbed about it. And I think this is going to be one of those situations, as so often is the case, when there is video and when there is such kind of traumatizing video, that's when change will happen. Because when you talk about brain injuries and concussions, it's something that's hard to kind of grasp, right? So much of what happens with with concussions and stuff, you can't see it. But with this situation, it was so just black and white. Like you could see exactly what happened. So there are going to be changes to the protocols. That stuff is already in progress. The first thing that's going to happen is they're going to close that loophole. There will be no option for a orthopedic diagnosis. If a player is staggering, exhibits that sort of behavior on the field, he will be completely prohibited from returning to a game. Similarly to as he would if he had lost consciousness, those sorts of things. So that's a start, right? The other thing I think will probably happen, it will lead to greater examination on who these neuroconsultants are, who these doctors are. Because I will mention, I hadn't said this yet, but the unaffiliated neuroconsultant in Miami, who was part of that case, has already been removed. I think the other side of the reaction to it has been just a lot of like care and concern for Tua's, him as an individual and his kind of life and his well-being and his long-term career. And that's a little different than I think we would have seen out of injury reaction 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, I actually saw, I think, an op-ed in USA Today about that with someone saying he should retire. And I think more generally, people have now just felt more uncomfortable watching football. Yeah. And just as someone covering this topic and someone who has to watch football for your job, how do you think about that? I think about this a lot and we talk about this a lot of like, you know, are we kind of complicit in the NFL industrial entertainment complex and everything that these men put on the line for our nation's entertainment? But I do think we do have a responsibility, I think, as the sports media and specifically as the media that covers the NFL to continue to hold the league and the union and the player, everybody to account here. For decades, right? I mean, the, the league was very irresponsible, denying that football had any role in lifelong brain trauma and CTE and those sorts of things. There were probably reporters decades ago who kind of went along with that, right? Who maybe we just didn't know better, you didn't ask the right questions. And now it's really important that those of us who do love the actual games and we love telling the stories of the players that play it, that we also are continually raising these questions and bringing this up and not taking the explanation of, oh, it was a back injury, not taking that as fact, right? I think the key thing is that football is never going to be safe. And one of the things that we'll hear from the NFL a lot is that the game is safer than it's ever been. And they'll talk about that concussion numbers are at the lowest that they've ever been. There's a lot of new equipment and rules and, you know, the safest helmets and all of this innovation and helmet technology and stuff. But ultimately, at its core, football is a very dangerous sport. And we have to remember that. And we have to make sure that we're holding the NFL because what the NFL does trickles down, right, to college football, to high school football, to youth football, and that the culture of the sport and the way that we're thinking about head injuries, talking about head injuries. If you want to be an NFL reporter, that has to be part of your job. 
I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask, why do we care about the NFL's policies? And number one, players' lives are at risk. But number two, it sounds like there actually is a ripple effect. The NFL seems like bulletproof, right? I mean, they've survived so many scandals and it's the most popular sport in America by a pretty wide margin. The one thing that I kind of see as potentially the only threat to the NFL is if kids stop playing football and if their parents stop letting them play football. And our generation of parents, we know so much more about brain injuries and the effect that football can have on long-term health. And that's not just athletes who have played for 20 years. You don't have to have played in college and a long career in the NFL to potentially suffer the effects of brain injuries. You know, I'm 41 years old, something that my friends and I talk about a lot with our kids and would they be allowed to play and should they be allowed to play? And I love the sport, right? I mean, I've made a career out of covering the NFL and I would have to think really, really long and hard and honestly probably wouldn't get there. I don't think I could allow my child to play football and that's that's a really big deal. I guess when it comes to this season, I feel like the NFL was trying to clean up its act, or that was kind of the narrative they were spinning. And the past year has maybe not been following that narrative between this injury with Tua and Deshaun Watson and the sexual assault allegations and him being sidelined. How are you just thinking about the power and importance of the NFL and the decisions they make right now? Yeah, I mean, and it's so hard because it's like, you know, we say the NFL, like it's just this is one big giant entity. And it's like America in some ways, you know, it is in a lot of ways. And, you know, we've covered the Deshaun Watson situation like very, very extensively and have covered the NFL's domestic violence crisis for almost 10 years now. And so much of it does intersect with the problems that we have as a country, right? And the way that we talk about crimes against women and sexual violence, the legal justice system. The NFL has intersected with all of that. But, you know, I think it's just a reminder that, like, no one is immune from these off-the-field issues. Doesn't matter, like, how big and how popular your sport is, their mistakes are going to be amplified. They're going to be highlighted. I do hope that, at least in this situation with Tua Tagovailoa, some good can ultimately come out of this. And it's, it's a really bad look for the NFL. It's a really bad look for the Miami Dolphins. But it is an opportunity now for the league to do better and be better for its players, for the next generation of players. So hopefully in this specific case, they can start to do better. Lindsay, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The other day, my friend had to tell me a story. But instead of calling me or texting me, she left me a three-minute-long voice memo. It detailed all the twists and turns, and it ended with a final, so yeah, that's the drama, I've gotta go to work now. It felt kinda weird. Like, we weren't on the phone or FaceTime, so I couldn't really respond. But this story wouldn't have made a lot of sense over text either. And it turns out that texting, calling, or even FaceTiming is so 2021. In 2022, we apparently send voice memos, which have become a more engaging way for people to stay in touch. Because it's hard to convey what it's like bumping into your ex through just text. In the words of one Skim HQer, 
text is not going to cut it. It's not going to do it. But just because everybody's doing it doesn't mean everybody likes it. Here are some hot takes from our coworkers. Why not just call me? If you're busy and you're interesting and fun, you don't have time for a phone call all the time. So you have to send a voicemail. You got to capture the moment. I always send a post-date voice note to my best friends so I can tell them how it went, how he looked, if he was six feet tall or not. Anything longer than two minutes is basically just a podcast. When you're a busy working mom, it is very, very difficult to maintain friendships, a thorough check-in with them is difficult over text. If some people send me a voicemail and I'm like, we're not there yet, who are you? If it comes down to it and it's the only way someone will communicate with me, I'm just not sure we can be friends anymore. (laughs) But whether or not you love them or hate them, voice memos are here to stay. So we wanted to dive into the art and etiquette of the voice memo. And we got some help from Elaine Swan, the founder of Swan School of Protocol, AKA she teaches modern manners. Let's start with the do's of voice memos, like keep it skimmy. Do make sure that it is actually a memo. I advise people to use it from almost a one-sided perspective, meaning you're not waiting to get a response, you just want to get some information across in a very straightforward manner. The other do is to keep it short. Don't be so long-winded. And thirdly, do get straight to the point. Don't start rambling on in the beginning and then finally leave the important part of what you have to say at the end. So if you're doing that date recap, telling a story, or just giving your partner a to-do list, keep it short and simple. This is not a podcast about your life or a session with your therapist. Tip number two, make sure people can hear what you're saying. You know, your message needs to be heard and it should be clear. So don't send a voice memo if you're in a crowded room with a lot of background noise. And if you're thinking about using voice memos in the dating world, like on Hinge or on Bumble, try not to be this guy. I order for the table Miller Lights and Fireball shots. If you don't like it, sorry. And instead, use the voice memo as a jumping off point for conversation. For me personally, I want to ask them a question and hear their answer, not giving them some time to rehearse it and record and then, you know, delete that and then try to record again and get it perfect. Because my thing is, look, let's rack them up, knock them down. So I don't want to give you too much time to get perfect and then come to find out you really cannot complete a declarative sentence live and in person. (laughs) Now that we've talked about the do's, let's get into the don'ts. First, don't send a voice memo to a person who likely will not listen to it. (laughs) Like our parents or someone who just is not that involved in technology and they find some difficulty with accessing it. Another big one, and this really shouldn't have to be said, but... Don't use it for a breakup. Another instance would be for, you know, just really big emotional moments, making announcements as far as getting engaged or you're expecting a baby or gender reveals, things like that. Allow the person to be able to celebrate with you in live form. And so try not to make those big announcements like that as a memo. And finally... 
Don't just send voice memos whenever you feel like it, no matter how juicy the gossip is. Just because you have a thought in the middle of the night does not mean that person is ready to receive the notification that you had a thought in the middle of the night. So be mindful of when you send it. And hey, here at The Skim, we actually like to kick it old school every once in a while with an actual voicemail. Call and tell us your thoughts on voice memos or anything else we talked about on this show at 929-266-4381. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next week. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcast. It's called 9 to 5-ish, and it's where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. You can find it wherever you're already listening to us.